You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. Hey guys, welcome back to this episode of Market Champions. I wanted to take this moment to ask you to leave a rating and a review if you're on iTunes or Spotify. It really helps my podcast grow and it helps me to keep bringing on the top guests in the industry. So thank you so much. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today we've got Mike Alkin and Timothy Chillery. Uh, from Sack and Cove Partners. They're here to talk about investing in uranium and the uranium thesis. So thank you so much for being on the podcast and I'm glad to have you. Our pleasure. Absolutely. So I wanted to start off with a bit about your background, both of you. Um, could you sort of talk about your journey to Wall Street and how you got to where you are today? So we can start with Mike. And Sure. Uh, I started about 20, 25 years ago or so. Um, just, I, I was, I have an accounting degree. I was getting a master's in journalism and I started working in a magazine and a financial magazine. And I saw what, what, uh, the sources were, they were a hedge fund and mutual fund guys. And it was suggested to me by one of the editors that I go and, and, uh, look at a hedge fund position because I understood the balance sheets and, and the cash flow statements and, I did, and I uh, met with a few guys, and somebody gave me an opportunity. And first few years, I spent a lot of time working uh, exclusively on the short side uh, of uh, doing deep dive fundamental research away from where the consensus was formed, which was the sell side investment banks. Did our own research, uh, and then uh, you l- learned a great deal being a short seller in how to have a contrarian view and how to ignore consensus, appreciate it, respect it, but then go look away from where the sausage is made and see what it really looks like. And so I did that. And I, the first half of my career, I spent a lot of time on the short side. And then <clears throat> I became a partner at a, at a pretty large hedge fund. And there I, it, was, it had a, a, a fair amount of, did, still did a fair amount of short selling, but had a very deep value uh, tilt to it. And uh, the partner at the firm who started it had a very long storied track record and uh, it taught patience and looking for asymmetry and find things that others are ignoring. And it was really there that the whole world opened up to me in terms of thinking about rather than chasing the same investments other people are, because I'm not that bright and I'm not, who am I to think that I know something more than 10,000 other eyeballs looking at it. So go find things others aren't paying attention to. And so that was really uh, for many years now has been the style of investing that I've uh, call it fact-based, call it contrarian, call it uh, finding the unloved, whatever it might be. But that's, that's how I've, uh, that's how I've done it. And five years ago, started looking at uranium and two and a half years ago, launched a fund on it after doing a lot of research and, and meeting Tim and Tim and I did a lot of work beforehand and there we go. So Tim, you want to, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, so I started uh, pretty early in my life, just had an interest that was uh, played a lot of sports growing up and was introduced to it uh, while I was a teenager. And 
it kind of fit a lot of my interests. You know, as a competitive person, um, there was a lot of you know research, economics, uh, geography, politics, a lot of interests of mine kind of that came together into one. So I pursued it uh, going into university. I majored in economics, which, uh, you know, we could have a lengthy de debate about how useful economics is being taught in Western universities today. But, um, and at that time, uh, when I was in university in the early 2000s, you know, in the later part of 04, 08, you know, we saw the dramatic rise of commodities and the influence of China coming into the market. And that really perked my interest. And I coincidentally had a friend in high school whose father had run his own capital for many years for his family. And he told me that I pretty much had a decision if I wanted to go to Wall Street to either go into the equities or commodities, um, kind of that route and commodities had always perked my interest. So I ended up going, starting my career in Chicago as a futures and options broker, uh, which was a great experience to just track all sorts of the, the various financial markets uh, right. and, and all the listed products uh, within the, the CME group and all the, the products that they have. I uh, did that for several years, and then I had an opportunity to join a, a, a physical commodity trading firm, and we traded uh, niche commodities. I worked specifically in the cashew market, um, and this really led me, and, and doing this after a few years, um, it led me to believe that um, there was real opportunity in niche markets, that there's all sorts of markets in the world, and that a lot of people focus on the very popular ones that you, you see on TV or the easy right. access on your telephone. But there are so many others where they, it's tough to develop or it's tough to get access to some of these markets. And I realized that we had a real edge and, and I was always successful in some of these niche markets. And so several years ago, I started looking uh, while I was working as a physical trader for some bombed out markets on the long side, stumbled into uranium. And I also ultimately stumbled into Mike as well, who coincidentally was looking at it as uh, back in 2015, 2016. Um, and it just uh, kind of, as we went further and further down the road, learning about it, uh, it seemed like a great opportunity. And, that, and that's kind of a long-winded way of, of how I arrived to where I am now. And that's awesome. Now, why don't you kick off the interview by sort of talking about the size of uranium and the size of the uranium industry. Um, so sort of how much of a collapse have you seen in the market cap of uranium mining compared to where it was, say, pre-Fukushima? And what's the total addressable market and demand like? Sure. Uh, so if you go back at the peak of the last cycle in the mid-07 time period, 2007, you know, if you looked at all the companies that had something to do with uranium, you're pushing $150 billion. Uh, and then if you go into 2016-ish, late 15, 16, that time frame, you were looking at about the public market capitalizations were $4 billion. So quite a, quite a big drawdown. I, I think at one time there were close to 500 companies that were in and around the area. And then back in the 15, 16 time period, it was less than 50. Uh, so you saw a significant uh, drawdown of market cap. And with that, you saw uh, you know, institutional investors leave the sector and you also saw the sell side for the most part, with the exception of a few smaller firms, leave the sector. And so when the sell side, the big investment banks abandon something, it tends to uh, feed off itself and investors then lose interest. 
And so that was that was that. You know, it's grown a bit now. Kazada Prom uh, came public in eighteen, late latter part of eighteen, which added several billion to the market cap. And and this year, this some of the you know the stocks have had a good move. So you know, you're probably in the mid teens, high teens. Haven't looked exactly at the exact market cap of the industry, but um, still, you know, a far way off of what it was at the last at last peak in terms of the individual commodity that goes to feed nuclear power. You know, nuclear power is roughly 12 percent, 11 to 12 percent of global power production. Um, and depending uh, on what estimates you look at, you know, over the next decade, demand uh, roughly is about a couple hundred million pounds a year. And then put a price on the price of the commodity, and that will tell you the size of the market. Uh, you know, a couple hundred million pounds times X dollars, and that right. will give you the market cap, uh, the market size, uh, dollar size. Right. Tim, do you have anything to add to that? No, I think Mike covered it pretty well. I, that's a good, good kind of general lead into probably some some more relevant discussion points. But uh, at the end of the day, think about uranium. The, in uranium, when we talk about it in terms of U three hundred eight, the feedstock that ultimately gets enriched. This is a very, very small market cap for publicly listed stocks. You know, like Mike said, in the mid teens, so call it sixteen, seventeen billion today, for eleven percent or so of global electricity production. That's pretty nominal relative to some of the, the IPOs we've seen or other asset classes that we've seen. Very, very small today. And as you say that, um, as you say that it is very, very small. So how should we be thinking about the nuclear power industry? And what is it going to take for the psychology to shift? You know, a lot of people just say that nuclear is unsafe. They point to the Chernobyl or Fukushima. So you know, what is it going to take for the psychology uh, to shift around this industry? It's a good question. Uh, you know, the industry itself has had a, a public relations problem. Uh, a lot of it brought on by itself. Uh, you know, their, their own advertising years ago, if, if, you, if you even call it advertising, it was always with the, the nuclear sign. And, you know, the emphasis on clean uh, power, carbon-free power, it never really resonated. Um, you know, these are what 900 megawatts, one gigawatt reactors that that put power to seven, eight hundred thousand, a million homes with clean, carbon-free electricity. Uh, you've had three incidents: uh, Three Mile Island, Fukushima, Chernobyl. Uh, even including those, uh, where unfortunately some people passed near and around the plants, uh, on a per terawatt hour. Uh, nuclear is the safest form of electricity production. Uh, that, that's a message that they don't really get out there, the nuclear power industry. So you kind of have to research it and know it. It's not something that's in the public realm. Uh, but, but where you see it, it's, it's really a tale of, of, of a couple of different geographies. In, in the West, you know, in the United States and in Western Europe, it's a more mature industry. Uh, I wouldn't characterize it as a growth industry. It's stable to slightly declining, um, but all the growth is coming from the emerging markets, Russia, China, the Middle East, uh, other areas that they are building reactors in. And when you put it all in the hopper and you, you take the builds minus the, the losses, it's, it's a growth business. You know, it's not a sexy growth business. It's a one, 2% grower, but, but it's growing nonetheless. Um, so, uh, it, I think what we've seen over the last, really, I'd say last 18, 24 months, 
there has been a, a bigger body of people that have recognized if you're going to attain your carbon neutral goals, uh, you can't just get there by going wind and solar. While right. wind and solar will have rapid growth, um, people tend to make them one or the other. It's either nuclear or it's alternatives. Uh, we, Tim and I think they're quite complementary because uh, you know the baseload element of nuclear, it's always on, it's a workhorse. Right, it's exactly. working 340 days a year. Um, you know, wind and solar working uh, quite, a, quite a fraction of that. And, um, but it doesn't mean one's better than the other. I think they both uh, have their place. Uh, you won't have the growth rate out of nuclear, but if you're a, a uh, that you do out of wind and solar, but that's not what the investment is based on. The investment is based on price and value of the, the commodity, which we think is, is undervalued dramatically. Yeah, absolutely. No question. I mean, you know, wind and solar should be viewed as wonderful supplements to the grid, um, to base load. Um, if, if, the, if there weren't some of the curtailment rates that we see with wind and solar, sure, it would be fantastic to have all the time. But the, the fact of the matter is that's just not the case. So again, we do feel like it's a wonderful complement to nuclear and some of the other base loads uh, uh, power sources. But to say that wind and solar should be you know, the primary source or you know, 100%, you know, we certainly wouldn't agree with. Right, and I wanted to ask you to sort of comment on that. So, you know, what price does uranium need to be before uh, the other operations come online? And given sort of the current usage estimates, how long before supply runs out and, you know, it actually gets there? You know, we always say price is everything. Price will incentivize at some point. Price incentivize is production. Um, you know, we we think, you know, to, to balance the market, right, uh, you, you could be in the $65, $70 range where supply balances with demand, but you don't, that doesn't work. That works on paper. Uh, just, you know, like it, the price got down into the high teens a few years ago when the, the marginal cost of production is close to $50 a pound. So you would say, well, how could it get there? Well, there was some excess supply and it just kept coming out. And now that's kind of worked its way. It has worked its way through. Um, but, you know, to incentivize are on maintenance rate that in, uh, you know, you're probably you probably looking at, at, at $50 uh, a pound. Um, but, you know, you have to think about a lot of what, when Tim and I see a lot of commentary, we see it very binary. What's that price? We think about it as though a supply stack pyramid, the, 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 the low cost providers could come in at a lower price, but they can only fill out X number of pounds, less than hundred million pounds. Right, the market's a 200 million pound user over a right. decade. So sure, your 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 lower cost guys can fill that up, and then you start working up the stack, and that's where you start to really need the higher prices. Uh, now that's that's on paper, and then of course you have market psychology that kicks in. Uh, in the last cycle, we saw the price go to 137. It never needed to get there. It, it could have been fine in the 70s, but you get this. This period where it's you know nuclear and uranium is a very interesting uh, sector because the buyers are only the cohort are nuclear power plants. You don't have speculation in the market like you do in most other commodities. Right, and so they drive the big contracting cycles. And if you look back to two thousand, the early two thousands, they were contracting at about 
a third of what their annual consumption was. And then when prices started rising and they feared a lack of supply availability, they contracted at around 150% of their annual consumption. Right. At the top. Now, fast forward now, for the last seven years, they've been contracting about 37% of annual consumption at, at the bottoms. So, you know, what happens at the next run? It, it just depends what they, what they want to do to secure it. Where we know it has to go, or believe it has to go, is from, from these price levels, uh, well more than double. Yeah, you know, one thing, and, and per Mike's point, he's absolutely right. And that's a, that's a general comment about, you know, the marginal price being $50. You know, if anyone's dug into the market, they know that there is a byproduct producer, you know, who produces pounds very cheaply. You know, I think anyone who spent time in this market knows that the Kazakhs and ISR mining is uh, some of the, t- the real tier one pounds that come into this market. And, and like Mike said, they can only fill so much. And uh, because of that, we, we seem to get a sense of just interacting with a lot of market participants and, you know, various entities in the market is that you, we see a confusion between what the cost might be at the mine level, then what the cost might be uh, all in at the corporate level. And then there's the price you need to return capital to shareholders. So there's a bit of a confusion in this market, I believe, in terms of what the cost of something is and what the actual required selling price is. And because prices have been relatively in the doldrums for the last few years, the the attention has been on what is the cost to pull it out of the ground, as opposed to what is the cost that the producers need to cover the life of mine costs and return some capital to shareholders. So that's something that maybe people should spend a little bit more time on and thinking about and how this, how this might play out over the next few years. Yeah, and you would even see it in, the, in the, some of the analysts that write research on it. Uh, when, the, when the market was higher, their cost curve was an all-in sustaining cost curve. What it, what it took at the corporate level to do it, that was the cost curve. And then as prices kept sinking and sinking and sinking, all of a sudden the cost curve became just a cash cost curve ignoring those other costs. So a mine one year, they had on the cost curve X and then three, four years later, it was X minus a lot to the cost. Well, ultimately supply cuts came because those mines need X plus whatever that real cost is. So yeah, you see a lot of, we Tim and I see a lot of, of that when they're talking about costs. Uh, you know, supply, demand, all needs to be put into context it's not just a specific number. Right, and I wanted to stay with, uh, the, uh, with the producer for a minute. And Tim, I wanted to ask this to you first. So now what is the capacity like for the current producers and is there enough capacity at all in the industry right now? Well, it's a good question. Um, it, there is capacity available. The, the problem is that the price does not support that capacity. And, and we hear it all the time where, you know, someone will say, well, there's all these mines on care and maintenance. They'll come back. They, they will come back. There's no question they're going to come back, but they're going to come back at a price that is appropriate to support that production. And by the time the price gets to those levels to support that production, some of the investment opportunities that are available, we feel that there are investment opportunities today will probably be a lot different in that scenario. Now, when will that price get there? Well, it depends on the operation. It depends on the type of mining and it depends on 
uh, how how different producers view uh, uh, how to return capital to shareholders at, at the end of the day. So you may see some people uh, maybe selling a bit aggressively to get some contracts on the book, to maybe get some financing, to get things going. You could see others waiting it out because they can say, you know, we can ride it out now, knowing that there will be plenty of demand coming to us in the middle part of the 2020s. So it's a little bit dependent on the operation, but at the end of the day, as Mike said, and as we say, price is everything. This is any returns in terms of care and maintenance mines coming back, any of the greenfield development that is ultimately gonna be needed in the middle to back half of this decade is price dependent. So sure, so let me give you an example. There's a, a, a every two years, a, a big book comes out called the Red Book. And basically, it's a you know, 450 page document that says at the end of the day, there's lots of uranium on Earth. Right. Well, that's wonderful. But at what price? And that's what our investment thesis and horizon is all about is what are the prices needed to support this production? And ultimately, because of that, that's, that's when you're going to see those, those capacities come back to the market that are available, but under the right circumstances and prices. And also, I'll add, with, with the existing production that's out there, even on care and maintenance, when you account for the mines that will be depleting over the next several years, there's new mines that are needed. And so you, building a mine is, is not just a, a technological feat and a, an engineering feat, but it's, it's a financing feat and it's a permitting feat. And those are long timelines. So, you know, for those to come online, you, you need a lot to go right. Um, and those will be needed. And, and what has to go right is price. Yeah, and you know, early on when we were looking at this uh, uh, thesis and, and idea and, and under trying to understand it, one of the big light bulb moments for us was the delay in uh, supply coming to the market in the sense of new production coming to the market. This is not natural gas, okay? This is not shale fracking right. where you can just kind of, okay, prices go up 10, 20, 40%. And let's kind of flip a switch. We'll get out there in the well field, start drilling stuff, and boom, bring that to market. This is totally different in uranium. It takes years. Let's say theoretically, long-term prices spot, whatever, get to $50, $60 a price, $70 a price to bring all this production. Well, just because the price gets there doesn't mean that the asset can be developed overnight. They need to get through their feasibility studies. They need to talk to banks. They need to get their permits in place. They need to actually build the mine. And these are not in places typically that are in the middle, uh, right by everybody. They're in remote locations sometimes. Uh, so getting the technical, getting the actual capital, getting the actual labor, this takes many, many years. So the price can go there tomorrow, but just because the price goes there doesn't mean that there's gonna be a supply response. You know, and as you use that example, um, you compared shale uh, to, uh, to uranium, where shale make this uh, start a reactor pretty quickly compared to uranium, where it takes a very long time uh, to build a new plant. So now, are there actually new plants being built? And now, when will these new reactors that are being built sort of uh, come online and be integrated into the grid? You have a little over 50 reactors under construction right now. And depending on the year, some years four, some years six, some years eight, will come onto the grid. 
Then you have a few, some that retire also. Uh, so you look at net numbers, um, but you're seeing appro approvals every or frequently uh, of new reactors that will start construction, not just in the planning stage, but got approval and will start to hit the ground. So you're going to have a very steady stream of reactors coming on uh, for the foreseeable future, as far as the eye can see, in terms of new starts. Um, and that's another thing, you know, we see a lot of commentary. So a country might be closing a, a reactor or two, and that's the headline. Okay, but how many have started and under construction and coming onto the grid? Again, it's the net number you have to look at. Yeah, and also, you know, one further point, you know, it, it is the net number. It, you also want to make sure that you're looking at, you know, the megawatts or gigawatts, uh, because, for example, in the U.S., you know, a lot of older reactors are being shut down that tend to be much smaller, you know, maybe in the, you know, 500, 600, 700 megawatt uh, range. Uh, but some of the new ones coming on are 1,100 megawatts, or said another way, 1.1 gigawatts. Uh, 1.6 gigawatts. So a lot of the new reactors that are being constructed, particularly in the places we talked about, the Middle East, Russia, China, they are building enormous size reactors relative to the ones being constructed 40, 50 years ago. So they're, they're ultimately using much more uranium. So take a look at that, that megawatt or, or gigawatt number uh, and add them up the, the new builds that are coming, subtracted by any of the ones coming out to get your net number. And uh, that's the way that we look at it. I believe in uh, your presentation on macro voices, um, you mentioned that, or at least on the presentation, you mentioned that uh, there's asymmetry due to complex and a very opaque nuclear uh, fuel cycle. Could you describe the cycle and how it works? Sure. Uh, so there's many stages to the fuel cycle. You, you mine uranium out of the ground and you get U308 and you crush it into something called yellow cake. And that gets sent off to a conversion facility where they turn it into UF6, which is a gas. And once they do that, they send it to an enrichment plant where they enrich it so that it's fissile in nature enough to uh, uh, go into a, a fuel rod into, uh, into a nuclear reactor. From the enrichment plant, it, it goes to a fabricator where it's put into pellets about the size of your thumbnail. Uh, it gets put into rods that get shipped off to the reactor. That could be 18 to 24 months. That's called the fuel cycle. Um, and so it, it, it doesn't just come out of the ground as uranium and go into a reactor. It, it goes through many, many steps to do that. Which each have different prices. There's the price of uranium, the price of conversion, the price of enrichment, um, which is called SWU, the price of fabrication. So uh, there's, there's many steps along the way. Yeah, and just generally, um, you know, first of all, it, it's not a highly followed market. You know, the vast majority of investors, including commodity investors um, or energy investors, tend for what, whatever reason not, not to look at uranium. It's just a very small um, kind of ecosystem, if you will. Uh, and so because of that, there aren't a lot of eyeballs on it. Because there are not a lot of eyeballs on it, there are not a lot of resources and transparency just in terms of what's going on with the U308 price. Um, in fact, you know, th there's a, a few consultants and price reporters out there that report the price on a daily basis. I mean, I can tell you watching this market 
quote unquote trade every day for the last four to five years, it's the equivalent of watching paint dry. If you're coming from oil or gold and you're watching your uh, futures platform, you know, and these prices are sizzling around with billions of dollars per day in notional right. value trading, you are going to tear your eyes out watching uranium trade because it doesn't do anything day to day. There's no, there's no trading happening all the time. I mean, there are days where you don't see it move. Um, so in the industry, we call that trading by appointment. Um, but so because of that, you know, for, and, and whatever other various factors, people are paying attention to it. And so it just kind of, you know, I guess in, in a certain way brings its own kind of mysteriousness and, 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 and opaqueness to it uh, because there are not a lot of price indications in real time. Um, and that's just for the U308 market. We're not even talking about the fuel cycle going to conversion. There's a price for conversion. That's a service fee that utilities pay uh, to converters to convert it from U308 to something called UF6, uranium hexafluoride. There's a, there's a price for the enrichment service, SWU, separative work units. So that's even going further down the rabbit hole, if you will. And due to these factors, um, there just isn't a girth of information and people paying attention to what's happening. Um, and therefore, it, it's kind of left, left to its own, own devices, if you will. Got it. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I wanted to go on to some uh, interesting developments that, ha that have happened recently. So recently, the Department of Energy in the, in the new stimulus bill has authorized $35 million a year for the next five years uh, for development, demonstration, and transportation activities for uranium. So how do you see that affecting uh, the industry? I mean, it's, it's, it's getting time the Department of Defense gets behind something, they tend to get what they want. And it's, it's, it's good for awareness, it's good for uh, stimulating research and spending. So that, that's good. You know, uh, as we look at it in the totality of the supply demand picture for uranium, um, it, it doesn't really impact at all how we think about the price of uranium. But it is, anytime that they are supporting it, it's, it's more of a net positive. And not. Right. So, uh, so uh, in one of our email exchanges, you described that you know new technologies in uranium have been around the corner, but the corner keeps getting wider. So, what is it that actually causes uh, you know this sort of phenomenon to happen? Yeah, <laughs> I'm just curious. Tech technology is hard in in this. It's you know. Uh, the the old reactors, um, you know, you've had a few accidents, but they've really uh, since since um, they've learned a lot of lessons and they've reinforced them, and they're still pretty damn reliable to begin with when you think about in in the totality of all of it. Um, but you've you've seen a lot of discussion on on all of these generational reactors that have been out there for many many years, and it just takes a tremendous amount of not only uh, technology and, and understanding and research, but capital. And so getting the capital there, you know, it has fits and starts. Meanwhile, the existing reactors, they get, um, they get their licenses extended for sometimes 20 years. So, you know, it, it, there are interesting technologies on the horizon, just, just not tomorrow, uh, not for this investment cycle. Uh, one of the newer ones, small modular reactors that will have a nice complementary role in nuclear. 
Um, and again, that's going to come down the road uh, and will be very, very, very good for the industry. Um, but for people who are investing in, in this cycle for the foreseeable future, it's really what do we have now and what's the price of the uranium that's required to get there? Yeah, and I think, you know, just like the uranium price itself is very cyclical, I think the views towards it and its pros and cons, benefits and not of nuclear power are cyclical too, you know, in, in the early part of this millennium and uh, the, the 03-06 period, you know, people call that kind of the nuclear renaissance and it was very back in favor, you know, oil prices were going were screaming higher during this period. So it was, how are we going to have enough energy for around the world? And it was very hip and very in favor. Um, and then Fukushima happened in 2011, of course, and it kind of fell out of favor. Whereas, you know, does nuclear really play a role? You know, is it really that big of a deal? Oil prices had kind of, well, oil prices were still a, a bit high there in 11, then kind of subsequently fell. And, you know, there, there was a narrative that maybe we don't need nuclear. And now once again, we were turning and we're seeing that, you know, as a part of this energy transition, nuclear has to be a part of it. And it seems to be gaining some momentum again, that this could be at minimum a bridge to the future, if not a, a piece of the overall puzzle. Go back to a point Tim made earlier about the spot market where, uh, you know, um, uranium doesn't uh, trade that much at all. So uh, where are sort of the, the spot market pounds coming from? And, both Cameco and Kazatomprom are net buyers in the spot market. And, you know, what happens if spot supply can't fulfill uh, this demand and how likely is this event uh, to occur? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a couple places where it comes from. Uh, there are some producers, there are some low cost producers that do sell into the spot market, uh, whether it's because uranium is a byproduct um, or they have low cost operations uh, out there in the world where they are selling into the market. There, there are some financial intermediaries or traders in, in the, the market that do have some offtake agreements that come you know, every 30 days or once a month or so where they're getting some material. Um, and due to these financial intermediaries business model and small balance sheets, they tend to sell them into the market pretty quickly. Uh, it, they're not really built as a business to take in uranium and just hold on to it for years because they think the price is going up and they're gonna sell you know, when the prices get to 50 or 60 or 70, if that ever happens, uh, which we think it will, but we'll, you know, we'll see. Um, so they're not really structured to do that. So th their, their job is to take pounds and, and sell them into the market. Uh, they, they don't have the balance sheet or the risk to do that. They're not really built to do that. So there are pounds that flow into the spot market every single month. Uh, with that said, uh, I think sometimes people conflate this idea of a few, you know, loose pounds, whether it's a million or two million pounds a month coming into the market with the structural deficit that has formed and will be sustained for many years moving forward. And again, it goes back to that market structure. If the utilities are not really active in the market, there's not a whole lot of other buyers for U308. There can be some trading firms, some producers, some financial people like hedge funds or, or that, that sort. There's some physical vehicles that could potentially uh, buy some as well. Uh, but at the end of the day, if the utilities aren't there in the spot market day to day, yeah, you can see some fluctuations in price in the spot market, but that really doesn't have a whole lot to do with the structural supply and demand backdrop that we have built our thesis around. And even when prices were in the 130s and stuff, you're still trading uh, 25, 30 million pounds a year in the spot market, just random pounds that appear. 
uh, when prices had gone from you know ten bucks to one thirty seven, there's there's always pounds floating around somewhere. It's yeah, just yeah, and, and to, to further that, because sometimes we hear you know when is spot going to run out? When is it going to dry up? There will always be pounds in the spot market, whether the price is five dollars or five thousand dollars a pound. There will right. always be traders in the market buying and selling this stuff. So it's just a part of any market. Um, and uh, so when we hear the phrase, when is spot going to dry up? I, I think it's not, it, it tells me that maybe somebody might be misunderstanding the market a little bit. Yeah. To wrap up the podcast, I want to ask you, do you have sort of like the anti-thesis on your thesis? You know, what could go wrong and what are the risks uh, in playing this uh, bullish case? It's, it's every day. It's a good question. Every day we, we started looking at uranium, trying to prove the bear case. You know, is there too much inventory? What would it take for the inventory to, to continue to be at these levels? Um, so you see, needed to see a series of, of things start to kick in because there was at one point back in 16, there was way too much inventory. There was too much uh, supply. You know, we just mentioned the spot market. Sometimes there's a few pounds in there. Sometimes there's a lot of pounds in there. Um, so, you know, we look at things uh, as to uh, producer discipline, um, right? Is is there anyone out there that would restart their minds because they've lost their mind and, you know, uh, uh, and all of a sudden they're going to do that? Uh, have their costs lowered dramatically? No. Um, it, you know, we a lot of times we hear, well, the Kazakhs could ramp production. Okay, we say that that's fine. Again, contextually, they can. And, and if they do, there's still a, a really big deficit, um, right? So it's all about context. Uh, on the secondary side, you know, um, there was something called underfeeding that the enrichers were able to extract more uranium from an order than, than the order called for, and they would sell that into the market. So to, to get our head around that, we spent quite a bit of time of understanding uh, supply demand in, in the separate work unit space, capacity, capital spending there. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, inventories that, uh, people are willing to just burn down to really unsafe levels of, of security of supply. So right. there are things that we're, you know, you, we're always every day trying to figure out what we could be missing. Right. And with that, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was our awesome pleasure. You. You thank our pleasure. You for having us. It was nice thank talking. You. Take thank care. You. Okay. See ya. See ya. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.